Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday the 12th of March. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary. Thank you very much. Before we started, someone sent me an email. They've been listening to some of the shows and they noticed that I and Michael will routinely use the phrase amuse-bouche. And rather than Googling this, they decided to ask me what it was. <laughs> Which I will now explain to all of you on the assumption that if one person emails me, many people are confused about it. And a mousse-bouche is something that you are given in a restaurant. It's, it's a gift from the kitchen. Usually it's sort of a, a bite-sized kind of thing that you don't order and you're not charged for. You are just given it by the chef. It's usually served at the start of the meal. I have gotten things like it between courses, but I think then they don't technically meet the definition of an amuse-bouche. I actually don't know what you'd call them. They're a palate cleanser. That is what an amuse-bouche is. It's, it's a small bite-sized thing that you're not being charged for. Although I suppose in this instance, your time is what you're paying for the podcast. and So it's not actually free. It could be a massive waste of your time. But a tasty, savoury and interesting bite-sized waste. So... Michael has some rumours he wants to talk about. And normally, you know me, I don't like to talk about rumours on the podcast because I like to kind of keep it to the straight and narrow. Mostly because considering this, you know, how close we've gotten to ruinous lawsuits on the straight and narrow, it's taught me to not go beyond that. However, I have heard the same rumours from talking to some of my friends in England in British politics. So, Michael, do you want to... Well, yes, and I... I re- I want to, first of all, obviously, say, Gary hates this. Gary hates reporting on rumours. We don't have a source. We don't have a, we don't, we don't have anybody who's going, we have no names. It's Dorth Ban Lum, Gudorth Ban Lay. <clears throat> so I'm taking complete responsibility for it. And I'm sure that Gary will comb it carefully and snip out anything. Oh, I don't plan on saying anything, but I don't plan on saying anything that could be in any sense, be uh, leave us open uh, to legal action. But it started off because, well, Gary, we have been talking basically since the 30th of December about the fact that we should be looking to different places to get some more vaccine supply when it became obvious to the Hoi Polloi from the Der Spiegel article that there were going to be problems with the vaccine rollout uh, because of the problems of the procurement within the EU. Now, our government presumably knew that well before the article had been published because they had all the details of supply and demand and the, the amounts that we were signed up to and when they were going to arrive, etc., etc. Anyway, one of the things that I had said at the time was that it seems the obvious place to go was to go to our, 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 our dearest friend and closest neighbour who had signed up for all sorts of things and had... Like, and had managed to get air, had gone an early appeal was with AstraZeneca and Pfizer, and they had masses and masses of stuff coming down the line, and they were going massively well with their vaccination program. And there was a possibility coming, coming very soon down the line. We hoped maybe the beginning of the of the second quarter, the end of the first quarter, beginning of the second quarter, when while in theory the number of vaccines they have on hand would only match the total the number of people still to be vaccinated, but it would be actually exceed their capacity to do what they had to do, and therefore they would have some left over. And now, you remember, Gary, that there was quite a bit of talk. Oh, gosh, it's more than a month ago now, sort of the end of January, beginning of February, that there was actually, the idea was, was going around London that this would be a good thing to do. And I was talking to 
a friend of the Edinburgh Institutes in London, who was a, one of these men, he's enormously well connected with all sorts of shadowy right-wing organisations and people in the Tory party. And he's a friend of Ireland's as well, his connections here. And he actually had said he himself was doing his little bit at a lot, the odd lunch here and the odd gin there to push the idea that uh, the odd Zoom meeting, I imagine, as well, that, you know, this would be a good thing to do and cousins across the water and all that. So everything was going fairly well. And Michael Gove had talked about it positively. Um, I think he, on the Today programme, Hancock had mentioned it in a presser. There would be positive words out of, even out of number 10. It was, there was a lot of positive feeling. Our friend Sam Bowman, a fellow at uh, the IEA and now director at another important uh, uh, economic uh, outfit over the a Cork man, great guy Sam. Sam had an article published in the Financial Times, I think on the 1st of February, making the argument from all sorts of good reasons that it was not just a good thing to do and a nice neighbourly thing to do, but positively in the interests of the United Kingdom, particularly in Northern Ireland, that we should all be vaccinated together. Anyway... Two days ago, was it a couple two days ago, there was an article I came across which kind of surprised me, which was, the headline was UK not in a position to give extra vaccines to Ireland, Taoiseach told. Martin Johnson has been told by Martin, sorry, Martin Johnson, captain of the English rugby team, Michael Martin has been told by Boris Johnson that his first priority is to vaccinate the people living in the United Kingdom, which is perfectly reasonable. But I thought it was an odd thing. Now, Gary, again, this is pure speculation. We have doing this not out of any information or knowledge, but how likely does it strike you that off his own bat, Boris Johnson would pick the phone up to ring Michal Martin and say, by the way, we're not going to give you vaccines? Politicians, in my experience, don't initiate conversations in which they have to tell you that they're not going to do something. You find out they're not going to do something when that thing isn't done. They don't like to say no. And generally speaking, if they have to say no, they make sure they're not in the room when the no is being said, and some other poor bastard has to say the no. To me, this has the taste, and that's all I'm saying. To me, this has the taste of Ireland reaching a point where, <laughs> let's face it, the vaccine supply issue is now a shit show. AstraZeneca's having problems. Pfizer's having problems. Uh, Johnson & Johnson have been approved, finally, but now Johnson & Johnson's saying they have problems. We are missing targets all over the gaff. The notion of doing 250,000 in uh, a week it looks like a pipe dream. This has the feel to me that somebody in Ireland, I don't know if it was necessarily Michal Martin, but somebody at this late date decided, rather than doing it six weeks ago, when everything was sweet and rosy and positive, to make the inquiry now. Now, so I thought, and didn't we get the no? And I thought that was curious. So I went back to my friend. And I went back to a couple of other people and I said, what's the story here? So first I went, I asked my, my friend in the shadowies and he went into the shadows and came back. And he actually said he'd something he had, he'd heard on the grapevine. I went to an, uh, another friend who he works, shall we say, in, in the media in London uh, and is again well connected. And they both came back with the same story. And I emphasize that is all it is. Now, they are, however, well connected people. And the story they have is that after this po initial positive push, a number of people very much behind closed doors because this perceived as was not the kind of story that would play well in the light of day, actively started lobbying against Ireland getting the vaccine. 
And the reason was there was a perception, and there is a perception that the that Simon Coveney has been deeply unhelpful, was deeply unhelpful in the, in the Brexit process, along with the rest of the, the Irish government, and has continued to be, since Brexit has happened, has continued to be more than averagely unhelpful. I mean, I don't know if what they expected of him. Maybe they, maybe they feel that he's seen that there's a perception that he's going out of his way. He's being unhelpful in a way that is even more, uh, more than necessary to do this. My our 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 friend with the Irish Connection said he had a, a chat with somebody uh, in party in the party HQ. He said, whose response was, and the quote, if I was roughly. Why the fuck should we pull his political bacon, uh, save his political bacon when he's done fuck all to help us? And that is exactly the same story I got from our friend of the media in London. There seems there seems to be this an act of antipathy which has produced this outcome. Um, you've been talking to a few people in England. Does this gel with what you've been hearing? Yeah, and uh, actually the only reason that uh, I decided that we should talk about this, given that it is a rumour and it's unsubstantiated. Or it could be that the people we know are being briefed because it's useful in some way to them. Absolutely. The thing that I thought was interesting was I also went to people, because I can't figure out anything about the Irish vaccination programme, because the Department of Health, the Minister, no one will discuss what's actually happening in enough detail to do anything. So I've been keeping a fairly close eye on the British conversation about will they give us vaccines. And what was interesting is that there was an immense amount of negative pushback after the initial positive uh, push for the idea from what I heard. But what I found interesting was that the people I talked to didn't say Ireland. They said Simon Coveney. Yeah. That the issue was not. It was always personalised. They said it it was against him. And um, apparently someone has taken offence in Westminster about Mr. Coveney's actions, whatever they were. Well, you know, Gary, who could possibly have predicted that being consistently unhelpful, undermining, snarky and belittling to our nearest neighbour and largest trading partner, blah, 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 could possibly have negative consequences down the line? Now, I'm not saying that we could have looked into the future and said, oh, there's going to be a pandemic and it would be useful to get vaccines from Britain. No, but... I mean, Michael, you said that. You say we couldn't look forward and see there'd be a pandemic. But you and I talked about this during Brexit heavily. And we repeatedly had the line that Britain doesn't just disappear after this is over. They are a massive trading partner. They're very useful for all kinds of things. And we seemed for a while there to have effectively a policy to piss them off as much as possible. To just really turn the screw on them for reasons that didn't really make sense just because we could. Yeah, And now we're sort of assuming these things are true and they're not, you know, maybe there's an issue on the British side and Westminster is briefing everyone on this because it looks better and it's, you know, it's just not true or there's something else there. It kind of just looks like we've now run into the foreseeable consequences of our own actions. Yeah, and I also qualify my own comment by saying that actually some of this was going on while the pandemic was indeed already in good progress. It's not as if this is something that happened in, in ancient history. So this stuff was actually going on while the pandemic. The reason why I think that there may be a degree of truth to this, a substantial degree of truth, is because I don't, on the face of it, see what political upside there is for Boris Johnson to say this or to do this. 
I don't think anybody is particularly paying attention. I don't think he's going to get any kudos politically in Britain for doing this. I don't think it, it makes a blind bit of difference to the British people, as long as they're getting their vaccines and they're happy with it. And they are getting them and they are happy with it. I don't see that this, I don't see that they're getting anything out of it. I think that this is an internal issue, an internal Tory thing, that this is, it may indeed, you could argue, be rather petty and rather bitter and unfortunate on their behalf that they should not be high-minded and magnanimous as we would wish them to be. But it's, it's very, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, it's, there's a smack of, there's a smack of uh, plausibility to it. And also because the people I spoke to, I don't think they were briefing me. They wouldn't listen. They would, if they're going to brief someone, they wouldn't be briefing me. They'd be briefing someone who actually had an, an audience, somebody who could speak to it, somebody who could, could form opinions or change opinions, which I certainly don't. And, and at least in one case, somebody who would actively hope was actively hoped, hoping that Ireland would, would benefit from this. And there was a lot of positivity about that. And there was general positivity within, as far as we could see, talking to people, even amongst the general population and looking at the reaction in social media. If you, do you remember, we were kind of surprised that the reaction in social media amongst, in, in Britain, amongst Tories and even Brexiteers was actually solidly positive. Even, even if, even if it was people who said, yeah, we'd give them just to show, just to take the pleasure out of giving it, up, because look, we, we did Brexit, we left, and we are in this position now because we made our own decision, aren't, you know, and to take that kind of schadenfreude from our, that they were helping us because Europe couldn't. But we wouldn't care why they were giving us the vaccines as long as we got vaccines. I was surprised at, at the positivity I saw amongst people and which, there seem to be because we've always had friends in Westminster. Yes, but we did lose a surprising amount of them over the Brexit process, and not necessarily. A lot of people in Westminster, and certainly in the House of Lords, have connections with Ireland, family connections, friends, academics, whatever. You know, they, they, we are not that far away. A lot of there's so much commerce and so human commerce, emotional familial commerce between the two nations that's inevitably the case and it was interesting that uh, 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 my the EB, uh, my friend in the EBI said to me you know this 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 isn't about hostility to Ireland with a capital I he said people I, he said that people generally speaking are positive towards Ireland the Irish they it's, that's not the issue it was very much it seemed to be a personal thing which is unfortunate. On the other hand, it's kind of impressive that one man could piss off a country so much <laughs> that they're just like, no, no vaccines for you. You go die now. Now, if there is any truth to this, I, well, I think there are lessons to be learned from the future. But the other thing is, it's still not over. The fat lady has not yet sung. It, I think that if we had a a different disposition towards them and, 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 a, and, a, and a proper approach and, you know, just be nice, be nice, be humble, Uriah, be humble. They may still be in a position to fire us over a few vaccines, still within a time frame that would be useful to us. And Gary, not to be always laboring the point, we're talking literally, uh, the, the quicker we can do this, we will save lives. People will live who might otherwise have died. There will be lives saved. So it's getting this country vaccinated Three weeks earlier, four weeks earlier, it might say, oh, it's three or four weeks, what difference is it? Three or four weeks will be three or four weeks where 10 people, 12 people, whatever, don't die that might otherwise have died. 
And I think that's, that is what I, what I consider a good thing. And I hope that's a non-controversial position. But I think it's what we have to keep reminding people of, that this is not an abstract equation. This is not a, you know, some high, pure piece of mathematics. This is a very practical thing. This is, this is politics at its most practical. So speaking about the European Union, Michael, as yes. we're speaking about vaccines, which means we must speak about the European Union, I wanted to flag for you the European uh, Union's newest project in Ireland. Yes. It's called the Good Information Project. It's being run by the journal.ie. They say it's a space where Irish news consumers can learn how to identify good information about issues that impact their lives. Each month, the journal will engage di digital audience on one major topic to create a space for discussion, learning, and sharing new ideas and solutions. Wow. The, the Good Information Project was co-financed by the European Union in the frame of the European Parliament's grant programme in the field of communication. The European Parliament was not involved in its preparation as in, and is in no case responsible for or bound by the information or opinions expressed in the context of this action. Of course, the journal will have absolute editorial freedom. I mean, this is not in any way going to change the editorial line or the manner or the nature of the reporting that we find in the journal. Absolutely. I mean, they will be talking about, you know, our democracy and our place in the European Union and the wider world. But they're very strong, Michael, that this will have no impact on what they would say. Well, that's good. And in the terms of the grant, that's explicitly said, that there will be absolutely no conditionality about the giving of the grant. Well, I mean, they, you know, the grant, when I went and read the grant documents, they absolutely do say that the, the EU will uh, enforce no editorial line. That's good. However, it did also say this, Michael. The expected result of the programme is to increase the reach towards targeted audiences more effectively with messages related to the work of the European Parliament in order to add legitimacy to European Parliament campaigns. In order to add legitimacy to European Parliament campaigns. Hmm. You see, to the naive, uneducated ear, such as myself, that sounds a bit campaigny, a bit advocacy, a bit we're taking a position and this is the position, you know, not simple reportage. So, you know, it also says the expected results of the actions are to provide regular supply of reliable and pluralistic information on the European Union, raising awareness of the European Parliament's key role as the voice of the European citizens and decision maker to ensure why... Sorry, no, sorry, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, go back and read that again. You know I'm a, I love a bit of comedy. Go on, say that again. I'm going to guess, because I said a couple of things there, that the part you found comedic, Michael, yeah. was raising awareness of the European Parliament's key role as the voice of the European citizen. The European Parliament's key role as the voice of the European citizen. Jeez, you couldn't write it, could you? I mean, that's talent. You see, that's, that's the thing. People always think that the comedy, like, Faulty Towers is all about, you know, the fact that you've got these great actors, and that is important. But if you don't have the script, Gary, you're at nothing. Yeah, and then it goes on, Michael, that such actions should primarily target EU citizens who have turned more demanding towards the European Union, especially <laughs> since the outbreak of the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> They've turned more demand. Oh, the, the ungrateful bastards. God, you gave and you gave and you gave. And they're still there with their hands out, their mouths open, like little nestling, nesting birds screaming for more worms. 
Oh, it's an ungrateful, it's an ungrateful task, isn't it, being a European parliamentarian? I mean, it is very kind of the journal to tell us that there would be no undue editorial influence from the European Parliament. Total editorial freedom, Michael. It's just, if you apply for a grant aimed at increasing the legitimacy of the European Parliament, and, you know, aimed at uh, raising awareness of the European Parliament's key role as the voice of the European citizen, and it's only a year-long grant, and presumably you'll want it next year as well. It does seem like the sort of thing where, Michael, you know, we... You ever notice, Michael, if you ever hire an expert for a job, you never have to tell them the answer you want. They just seem to understand what it is. They just know. The only thing an expert will tell you that you didn't know is the fact that you need another expert next year again. Gary, have we applied for this grant? No, Michael, we've taken the high ground of not applying for governmental grants. You know I, you know I don't like the high ground. Gary, I think we spend more time educating and informing our listeners about the, op- the operation of the European Union than a lot of other news sources. I think that we're eminently suited to get some kind of a grant. I know you might think, well we would have concerns about editorial freedom, but they do, you know, they do say complete editorial freedom will be given to the grant beneficiaries who must in turn guarantee impartial, balanced, reliable and pluralistic information contributing to promote a wide public debate on the EU. How 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 married are we to this whole impartiality thing? How big is the grant? Let's, that's, the, that's the key question. Well, I don't actually know. 8.8 million euro was set aside for grants in general in this area. For 8.8 million, Gary, I'll set you on fire and I'll worship the EU as a, as a deity. I'm just saying if there's anyone out there, you know, just if you're listening. But I imagine you wouldn't get the whole 8.8 million. Well, I mean, you don't know how many. That's across the entire EU. I mean, this could be, you know, just a couple of hundred thousand to the journal. For which I assume you would do no more than mildly scald me with water. Do you know, I don't even, for that, I think I'll, I'll, I'll worship the you as a deity. After that, I think I'd, I'd leave you alone. So I just, um, I just wanted to mention this. I just thought it was a, one, the name of the project is fantastic. The Good Information Project. Do you know actually what it, it started to remind me of now, which I can't, and now it's in there, I can't. There was a, a Chinese restaurant in Dublin called The Good Earth, which used to do a fantastic dim sum. And all I can think of now, before that, I, I think the reason that's in my head is because when you first told me the name of it, what came into my mind was Mao's China circa 1971. And I think I went from Mao's China 71 to dim sum to the good earth. But I think probably it's more Mao than the good earth. I mean, you really do think, you know, this it's good information project brought to you by the Committee for Public Safety. It's a fantastic name. The journal did pay, or did agree to pay, uh, at least 20% of this project's costs. So, you know, that's something. I wonder how much the Irish Times is getting in the grant from this. I have a feeling the Irish Times may not apply to this, on the understanding that even with editorial control, there is very clearly an objective to this programme. An objective which I imagine if you don't meet, you will never get again. Do you know, I can't remember the exact quote, there's a famous quote from, I think it's a politician, maybe not commentator from England, I think in the 50s or 60s, is it? Why would you, why would you bribe a British journalist when you see what they will do unbribed? And I'm just thinking in the context of, shall we say, the line, generally speaking, that we see on European affairs from the Irish Times, why would you bother to give them a, a grant? I mean, how much more could they do? I, I look at stuff like this and this sort of EU funding, and I was just like, that just chips away at your credibility. 
I mean, we were talking the last week about, you know, the chilling impact of knowing that someone is funding you. But here, this like, these grants, for all they say, there's no editorial control. There is a clear objective for them. You knew that before applying for it. So are you going to say you applied for it and you have no intention of shaping it at all to achieve that goal mm-hmm. in any way? And I think stuff like this just destroys your credibility. But then on the other hand, Michael, we published two stories last week about how the journal's fact-checking was basically total garbage, not even considered fact-checking by their crowd. And they just didn't respond to it. They just ignored it entirely. Um, That story, by the way, was very widely passed around various media circles. So it's not like there was no reputational damage. But at this point, I'm just not sure what there's left to chip away. But speaking of fine, outstanding organisations spreading the truth in the face of lies and misinformation. Misinformation is the word du jour, isn't it, Gary? Misinformation all over the place. Did you see Naomi O'Leary's article in The Times about uh, vaccinations? The headline... This this is an article, headline, there are no spare vaccines available for Ireland to lobby for, which admits in the article itself that there are vaccines available for Ireland to lobby for, but Naomi doesn't think we should. It also came out something like six hours before a New York Times article came out that said America has tens of millions of AstraZeneca vaccines in warehouses but they haven't approved it, so the administration, there's a big debate about whether or not they should just send it elsewhere to other yeah. countries. So it's sort of a, there is no mountain of vaccines, but the New York Times says there's a mountain of vaccines. Well, that's just bad timing. It is. On, 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 in Twitter, the, 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 the overline was, Ireland is seized with the idea that there are spare vaccines somewhere for the taking. It's divorced from reality fueled by misinformation and people who don't know what they're talking about uh it's also it's 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 (laughs) it's actually quite a funny article because it just starts blaming the british it's like this this is just driven by the the brexit process has mentally estranged even normally sensible british journalists and it's hyper partisan reporting about the eu is now pervasive it kind of shows me how you know england went through that period where everything was the uk's fault because it just worked politically. Uh, everything was the EU's fault. There's a segment of, I think, the, the, the uh, Irish media and Irish uh, politicians who think that can now be done about Britain. Oh, just why is this happening? Where's Britain? Is it, though? Is it Britain? No. It, it, in support of Naomi, I, I, I should refer to a, a tweet by the usually very fine Sarah Carey, um, who said, Well done, Naomi O'Reilly. Lads, there are no spare vaccines no matter how much Carl Brophy is willing to pay for them. And the joy again, as you said, a couple of hours after Naomi did the article, the, the New York Times published the thing about the literally tens of millions of AstraZeneca vaccines hanging around in warehouses, not nobody knowing what, quite what to do with them. A couple of hours after this, I think I, maybe even less, there was the story broke from Switzerland, that the Swiss had just bought 3 million Pfizer vaccines, which will be co- start coming in from the beginning of April. Also, I mean, there is also an element of this, which is, it isn't, I will concede, Gary, this. It is no doubt more difficult now to get vaccines on the open, on the market than it was. I'm sure that is true. But it is worth pointing out, as we, we did, that in the period since we knew that there was going to be a problem, Denmark, 
in January, Malta in February, Hungary, Slovakia, Serbia, Czechia and Germany have all done independent deals to, to, to get other to get extra vaccine. I mean, it's a bit like saying somewhere at the end of 1847, all these people saying that there are potatoes available. It's not true. There are no potatoes available. Well, no, by the time you got to 1847, there were no potatoes available. Absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that you didn't have a chance in, in, the, in this case of the vaccine, that there weren't many, many opportunities. Bloody well get the vaccine, to get vaccines. Given the Swiss and American news, it's roughly that, but you're standing directly in front of a warehouse literally bursting with potatoes. <laughs> yeah. I, I quite liked her line on, um, on Washington. Like, nothing now constrains Michal Martin from asking Washington or any other capital nicely if they may have some going spare, but it would be a long shot and appear a bit desperate. And that's something we should care about, Gary. We should really care about the optics of looking a little bit desperate. That should worry us. Sweet. Uh, but Biden, Biden, who is, we know, basically Irish, I mean, to the tippy toes, uh, from tippy toes to fingertips, and he loves us, and, and we have great relationship with him. Why don't we go and say to Joe, Joe, for the, for the sake of the old country, there's 30 million or so vaccines sitting there. Fire us over a million. Go on. Do the decent thing. Nobody will notice. We won't, we won't tell anyone. I mean, Gary, I don't know. Did I, I mention, I think, did I mention this? I think I did mention this on, right? On, on, on Wednesday. It gets to the stage where the vaccine center here was doing no business on Monday. So, Monday, no vaccinations were being take, were taking place. Um, I haven't been able to find out why because I haven't been able to get through. But the only reason I can imagine is because there were no vaccines to give out. Last Sunday, the Sunday just gone, there were 1,375 vaccines administered. Wow. Uh, all first doses, there were zero second doses administered. This is something, actually, I haven't heard a lot of talking about. When you look at the um, at the doses... Yes. The It looks like we have effectively switched to basically focusing nearly entirely on first doses. It does look like that. Does, there, there's a, there has been no announcement of an official change in policy. So if you go if you go back to about the let's say the let's see what stats I have in front of me the twenty third of February to today. Yeah. So first doses go up by about one hundred and fifty thousand over yeah. that period. Second doses go up by twenty thousand. For all intents and purposes, we appear to have switched to a focus on first doses and just not mentioned it to anyone and kind of assumed no one will notice. And there may be reasons for that. I think there may be I think there may be a decision that they wanted to do double doses when they were dealing with the care homes uh, and they wanted to make sure that everybody was, was done and dusted and uh, as safe as they could possibly be in those situations. Now they're a little bit more willing to to follow the single dose but they would they, they they don't just say they're doing a single dose why the only reason i can imagine and I'm probably off the wall on this is because that's what the english did and everybody said oh my god this this is this is russian roulette this is not what the manufacturers are recommending this is and now people are, and now all over the world people are going actually yeah that looks like it was a really good idea and actually the, by actually extending the period between the first and second dose, it, it, it looks like we actually you get a better outcome rather than a worse outcome. So 
rather than a bit that we're going to do what the English did, we'll just do it on the QT. Back onto the Naomi O'Leary article. And normally I wouldn't, I don't even discuss Naomi O'Leary's articles on the EU because I think they're of such... Politico is biased towards the EU because it's it's mostly read by people in that space, the, at least political, the, the EU version of it. Politico is far more balanced on the EU than Naomi, so I just don't generally bother because it is useful to get like the most Jean Monnet professorship line possible, though. But there's a part where she goes, can't we get more AstraZeneca jabs that are sitting on shelves in France and Germany because of their fussy citizens turning them down? They're fussy citizens. Yeah, and then she says that that is a misleading idea that's the result of overexcited reporting in Britain. And then she just goes on to um, not talk about it at all. Overexcited reporting in Britain. And then she says that um, she t- refers to inaccurate remarks by French President Emmanuel Macron yeah. about the efficiency of the Oxford-developed vaccine. And like, that's one way of putting it. Yeah, I think, what was the phrase? Based on what we have, it's basically useless. Basically useless. For basically ineffective. Basically useless. Yeah, well, I mean, that is technically a comment about the efficiency of the vaccine. But... Just on that idea there, where she brought up, you know, there are, there's massive amounts of AstraZeneca in France and Germany, because, largely because of the ways those countries talked about the vaccine, a lot of people don't want to get vaccinated by it. And there's been an idea going around that Ireland could reach out to them and um, try and get some of the spare ones. Now, the problem there that people have brought up against that idea is that it's politically very hard to sell vaccines to another country, because... I mean, the reporting on it would be brutal. You'd get slaughtered. But I don't think that's actually that would actually be a barrier in this case. I think if we were to go to them, and instead of trying to purchase them, we put in a deal where in exchange for us giving a percentage of those vaccines now to us, yes. that to them would be a minute amount, but to sure, us would be, sure. would be substantial, we would in the future give them a certain percentage of our Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson vaccines. Absolutely, yeah. Just in exchange for a substantial amount of the AstraZeneca. Now, now the difference there is by the time we'd have to pay them back, there would be much more vaccines in general, so it wouldn't really matter. We'd still come out massively ahead. And the Germans and French could then sell that as, well, look, we've traded these vaccines that no one wants for uh, Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson and Moderna or whatever the hell. Yeah, sure. So so this whole we couldn't buy them just politically wouldn't work, I think is just a sort of yeah, okay, if you're if if your line is just we're not gonna think about this at all, it just wouldn't work, yeah, I suppose that's an excuse. But if you give it a couple of seconds, you can come up with ways where you might not get it, but you'd have a damn sight of a better chance of getting it than just oh, we'll just try and buy them. They said no, okay, we're done here. There there's a bit of a sluggishness to actually even ask people. Yeah, a desire not to look desperate. It, they were too embarrassed to ask. I mean, I would hope, I would hope, Gary, seriously, though, that actually we have asked and they've just said no. I mean, I hope to God that is actually what has happened and we just aren't being told. Because if we haven't yet asked, well, then that's yet another shameful failing. But then, then Naomi goes on to, she talks about the Russian and Chinese vaccines and says yeah. that, yeah, we, we will be free to do those. But we should be under no illusions about the trade-offs. We'd have to accept liability if anything went wrong. So, so what? And then people might not want an unregulated vaccine. Entirely true. But people might want a vaccine. And then she says, and it would upset our allies. And the hungry granted, she, she calls it a propaganda boom 
to Moscow and Beijing, which it is. But on the other hand, who cares? If it works and they can supply it, who cares? I don't think anybody, or not that I know of, I don't think anybody's really talking about the Chinese vaccine. No, I actually, I, I think that's just been lumped in there in a sort of, well, no one even talks about it because there's just an assumption that it's not really hanging together. And from what we saw in Brazil it and the, the variable uh, efficiency rates, I don't think anyone is terribly comfortable with it. However, the Russian, she says unregulated. My understanding is that the regulation process has become has begun with the EMA. I know there were issues there. The Russians thought they had started it 11 days earlier and the, the EMA were saying, no, you didn't. But now the whole thing has started. So presumably the EMA has been doing a rolling control of the vaccine. We know they've published their, the data in the Lancet. It has been peer reviewed. So it is more, it, if, it, if it, it seems likely that it's going to be approved. And on the basis of previous experience, it'll probably be improved at this stage, maybe a couple more weeks and it would be, it would be approved. So as I said, normally I don't, I don't bother with Naomi's articles. But I think the, the interesting thing here is that this article lays out a lot of the most kind of common attempts to rebut any sort of line that this was the EU's fault or we should acquire more vaccines by simply going, that's not possible. And a couple of months ago, Naomi would have been saying, well, there's no point going outside because we'll be fine. And then you get this sort of Sir Humphreys thing of, you know, oh, eventually it gets to, yes, well, we should have done something, but it's too late now. I, I don't know if you noticed, if you looked on any of those, the, 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 the feeds following this kind of thing, the number of people saying, oh, yeah, oh, the people are giving out, oh, if, you actually, if they were to look at what you'd have to pay, they'd be whinging about paying too much for the vaccines, the same ones, they're just looking for someone to... I asked a question today, just out of curiosity, on my tiny little Twitter uh, presence, which is infinitesimal. Uh, how much would be too much to pay for a vaccine? Or for enough extra vaccines to be able to vaccinate this country much more rapidly. Keith Redmond responded and Sam Bowman agreed. He said, Well, three fifty if if three fifty a week is a POP payment, I think three fifty would be a reasonable thing. The one of the think tanks, the economic think tanks in Germany, has estimated that each vaccination brings an economic benefit of somewhere, I think, between twelve and fifteen hundred euro. Uh, and that's just sort of as a baseline. So I think 350, uh, now we wouldn't have to pay the color of it. But you know what, Gary? I think if we went out saying 350 per vaccine, we might actually get a few vaccines. I think the, 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 supplies, the supply issue might start to sort itself out a little bit. We heard today or well, tomorrow or yesterday by the time the podcast goes out that we're now looking at two months more of lockdown. Yeah. That it'll be some point in May, maybe the end of May before this ends. The only way this is ending in any long-term sustainable stance, is this vaccination program. So it doesn't even matter what you think about the vaccination program and whether or not it works, whether or not it's what should be done. It is the only way the government is going to allow any sustainable end to the lockdown because they've made that absolutely clear, that they have no alternative ideas. I mean, they're still barely talking about rapid testing. They have no idea what they're doing. So vaccination is the only thing that's going to actually any chance of them opening the economy. I mean, as opposed to, you know, slowly killing the entire country. Yeah. Does it not feel to you, Gary, a little bit like we have stumbled into a form of zero COVID by accident? We've stumbled close enough to zero COVID that it's painful, but have left them enough space to still come out and say, well, if you'd just gone slightly more, it would have worked. 
the only, it seems to me the only fundamental difference between the noises coming from the government now regarding this is that the government the politicians are, are still speaking far more positively about the consequences of having large-scale vaccination in the country than zero COVID people are, who are rather sceptical about how effective even, how effective a full-scale vaccination program will be and the necessity to maintain lockdowns even beyond that because of the fourth wave which will come in the autumn and the new variants and so on and so forth and all the other cheerful things. No, we'll only have three waves because we'll never open again. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. One of the reasons I'm talking so much about the vaccination program and I'm doing so much stuff on it and I'm trying to write on it is that I, I've just come to the conclusion that is the only way the country will ever reopen is if this program succeeds. And it is flatlining at the minute. Actually, technically, it's it's going down at the minute. I remember back in the, the 80s, Rome had a problem with its with air pollution. And they used to have these things where it would hit a certain level and you go into level red. It was a red level and that meant things like you could... You could only drive your car every other day, and it depended on what your 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 reg what was on your reg plate. If it was an odd number or an even number, and then there were no cars at all on Sundays, and there were all sorts of other things that would come in, and then it all dissolved. And I said, "Oh, um, they got the pollution problem under control." They said, "No, no, no." Well, then what what happened to the red thing? No, we just changed the level that would that would trigger a red a red zone. So that's effectively what we're doing now with the vaccine program. We are just bringing the target. Now, in order to meet the targets, we're not upping the number of vaccinations. We're bringing the targets down. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Like we, We've missed last week's target by less than the week before, but we brought the target down substantially in order to do that. And we still missed it by thirteen thousand, I think. Yeah, which is yeah, it's it's, it's not really a, it's not a great way to run a railroad, is it? When you're in, you know, less than six figure numbers, thirteen thousand is a substantial chunk of what you're missing. But what we are not apparently missing, Michael, is the ocean of booze getting ready to just drown us in our own homes. Oh, this this is this is great stuff. I love this stuff. Uh, there was a a story in the Times. Now, naturally enough, I suppose all of us. And this has been a story that's been kind of wending its way around the gaff for a while, hasn't it? That uh, we are we are responding to being locked up in our houses and there's terrible drinking going on, drunkenness and so on. So I just thought it was a curious way of framing a story, shall we say, Gary, that's all. It's it's more about the, the, the framing and the anything the, the, else. The headline in the Times was, Wine sales surge in past year amid bar and restaurant closures. Then underneath it is, in quotes, ocean of alcohol pouring into Irish homes since pandemic, says Alcohol Action Ireland. An ocean of alcohol, Gary. I would have thought that would be quite uh, quite helpful for Alcohol Action Ireland because nothing, I think, Michael, would make a man become teetotal uh, quicker than seeing his wife and young child swept away by the relentless tide of liquor. Yeah, if he liked them, yes, certainly. I just work on the assumption most people like their wife and children. Yes, and that's probably true. Although I'd like to see some I'd like to see some teacher data on that, you know. <laughs> we have to be data based except when I'm doing a, a gossip story. But you know, Gary, I my, my suggestion to you is this that if you were to see that headline and then see the the line Ocean of alcohol pouring into Irish homes 
you would go away with that sense of, oh my God, this pandemic has been really bad for the old boozy. And we're all, we're all self-medicating. The doctor won't give us Xanax. So we're all hitting the bottle. No, no, I, I wouldn't, Michael, because I know these people. These are the people who come out and sort of go, oh, look at this massive increase in binge drinking. Yeah. They mention the fact that they have been systematically reducing the level that would be considered binge drinking for decades at this point. And sort of, oh, every time the numbers fall, we move it down and then binge drinking goes up. It's it's magical. And you sort of go, I don't, I don't think that's how statistics are meant to work. However, in the context of this ocean of drink, I just, here's some figures released by Revenue, okay? There was a 17.3% decline in beer consumption in 2020 compared to 2019. There was 11.4% decline in cider consumption in comparison to the previous year. Spirits Gary went up by 0.7%, which is the amount of the amount of spirits, not the, not the per capita consumption, by the way, and the population increased, so work that one out. While the amount of wine consumed increased by 12%. Now, all of that means, Gary, while this ocean of alcohol swept into your house, there was a 6.6% fall in the amount of alcohol consumed per capita last year. Yeah, Michael, I think as an activist organization, you're always going to pick the stats that look best for you. Yes. Good organizations, organizations that have standards and you know ethics, they're not just going to bullshit you. They're going to, maybe they'll put it in a certain way, but they're not going to lie to you. If you start coming out with statements about drowning in oceans of alcohol, and there's a 6% fall in alcohol consumption. It's like when, um, was it the Irish Heart Foundation brought out that vaping study? And they said that the, the industry was the industry was lying about flavours. And Simon Harris came in and he gave his big spiel about it and how we've got to protect children. Covered in the Irish Times, covered in all the papers. And then when we looked into it, it was what, it was 12 school children that asked a series of leading questions yeah. in what was clearly preliminary research. And we looked at that, and I remember saying to you at the time, Michael, that any organization that will publish this and will say that this gives results is not a serious organization. They're not an organization that actually cares about the evidence, because this is not at that level. At this point, you know what you're publishing is nonsense. You know it has no backing to it. It could be right, could be wrong. You don't know. But if you're comfortable to come out and say this is the standard, this is where we will put our flag based on this level of information, you're not a serious evidence-based organization. You're just coasting on reputation. Well, if that's true about the organization publishing that, what does it say when the minister for the minister in the state responsible looks at that study and says, I'm convinced this is incontrovertible evidence. We know what we have to do. They came out and said an entire industry was lying based on a terrible, terrible study of uh, children. What was it Harris said? We're on to you. We know that you're targeting children. So it was, was it, I think it was the Heart Foundation. It could have been the Irish Cancer Society. No, I think it was the Heart Foundation. I, that's my memory, but I, my memory may be faulty. And yet, Simon Harris, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call a stop to this. He actually, he mentioned the public health alcohol bill when he was talking about it. And um, yeah, like that that's, there are activist organizations I disagree with that produce good work. And it's difficult to go through and figure out sometimes 
are there any issues or you know where you actually think they're wrong and sometimes they're just right but stuff like this or stuff like saying you know there's an ocean of alcohol when there's a six percent drop you're just not a serious or that, that was alcohol action ireland wasn't it yeah alcohol now just i i just i don't want to spend too much time on this because i i just i genuinely thought this was just funny I just thought there was comedy to the to the contrast between the actual da- details of what was happening with consumption as opposed to how this story was framed. But just to contextualise it, just to, to, I'd invite the listeners to reflect on this. We've seen a 6.6% fall in alcohol in a period when you have people at home, very large numbers of people not working at all, unemployed, where people are fed up, they're not socialising, they're not getting to the pub, now, this is a total fall in the amount of alcohol consumed per capita. That's what I'm reading here on the RTE website. Now, remember that if you were somebody who, was normally go, who would normally go to the pub, right? Mm-hmm. Say you went to the pub twice a week and had four pints each night you went out. And say you're, you're paying around 20, that means you're, you're spending 40 quid a week on your pints, five or a pint, right? And say that's roughly double prices, just for the handiness of it. Now, that would mean, by the way, you were a serious drink, a serious binge drinker if you're doing that. Now you can't do that. So if you're having a drink at home instead of going to the pub, you have 40 quid. My point is that you would be able to consume far more alcohol, spending far less money, should you choose to. 40 quid would get you two boxes of bottles of, two bottles, of, say like 40 bottles of beer from any off-license in the country I mean, if you want to go for the cheapy, cheap stuff, you get a hell of a lot more than that. The availability of time for people to drink was expanded. The fact that people weren't having to get up in the, ne- the next morning to work was expanded. Or the fact that people were working from home so they could be more flexible and say, oh, well, I'll have a couple of drinks tonight and I don't have to be actually active until 10 o'clock, so I'll be fine. I don't have to be in the office, so I'll be fine. I don't have to drive anywhere so I can have a drink, so I'll be fine. Even in the context of all of these things come together and the fact that people just might feel, oh, God, I want a drink. I'm so fed up. All of these are things that might lead you perfectly reasonably to believe that people would actually consume more because it was going to cost them less to drink more. They had more opportunity to drink and fewer impediments. But in fact, at the at this time, the consumption has fallen by 6.6%. So, and yet we are we will be told again that we are a country. We have this terrible, terrible problem with crisis. We need minimal alcohol pricing. It has to be brought in because it's a proven tick. It's a it's proven to help with people who have serious alcohol problems. I always I always get a, a faint sense of disappointment when I see research like this, or I see research like the um, the Irish Heart Foundation. Not because it gets picked up and it's successful, and that sort of indicates that either the journalists aren't reading the methodology, or that the methodology just doesn't matter at all. But why I, I get disappointed in it is, I think there's a certain level of like um, craftsmanship to this sort of stuff. I quite like seeing organizations I don't particularly like, or organizations I do like, produce things that are well put together, or you know, do interesting things with research, even if I don't like the results, because... It's just something that's well done, and I like well-made things. And also there's an element of competition here. If your opponents do better, you'll do better based on that. And this I'm always just faintly disappointed in, because you look at these people, and they have massive levels of funding, they have massive access to resources, politicians, all of the stuff that you, you know, most NGOs would kill to have, 
And then they turn around and they just produce, like, they just wing it. They just produce garbage. And you're like, you could produce exceptionally good work. You have the money and you have the people. You're just not asked to. And that kind of, that's just disappointing because that's just wasted potential. I will make one final point about Alcohol Action Ireland. If you go onto their website and you go to their about section and they've got, you know, our strategy about us. And, you know, these they all have these cute little images, Michael, like our approach is just a load of people holding up letters that spell the word health. Then there's a section called Our Funders. Would you like to get what the picture on that is, Michael? Go on. The HSE. It's just a photo of the HSE's logo. And that is the important thing about Alcohol Action Ireland. Not only are they bad at their jobs and uninterested in producing high-quality research, they're also funded nearly entirely by the health service executive. Now, they get occasional... They do get private donations, and, I mean, the National Lottery will give them money, or if something is particularly going on, they might get money from a different department. But they are nearly entirely publicly funded. So they are basically being paid to lobby the government to limit taxpayers' choices using taxpayers' money but with no oversight as to how that money is spent. There was a letter in the Irish Examiner from Alcohol Ireland, uh, which they tweeted out to, uh, to, uh, yeah, I think it was today, or yesterday. And it's meaningful progress can be made in Ireland to end alcohol use amongst children if alcohol is taken on proven measures on price placement and promotion, just as we did with tobacco. Okay, number one, nobody sensible, I, I think, is engaged in any kind of argument saying that we should be promoting the use of alcohol in children and that we should be doing everything. It is illegal to sell alcohol to children and that is absolutely correct and we shouldn't have people be giving alcohol to children and they, that's fine. However, if you know, part of the moral panic, this just contextualizes. If you look at the figures, um, Irish girls come second bottom of the league for drinking for alcohol uh, in Europe, I think, just above Iceland. Irish boys come third from the bottom above, again, I think, Iceland and Norway. The biggest drop in alcohol consumption in teenagers has happened in Great Britain and Ireland uh, over the last, I think, 15 years, and they've dropped from near top, middle of the, down to the bottom. If you look at figures regarding Frequency with which uh, uh, young people drink in Ireland, frequency with which, and I'm saying teenagers under the age of 18 here, frequency with which they binge drink, uh, numbers of times which they're drunk. Irish teenagers are drinking less, less frequently and getting drunk less often than their parents did. There's been a fundamental cultural shift, and that's what changes the way people behave. It's fashion and culture. They're far more body conscious. They're far more interested in going to the gym. They're far more interested in health issues. It's rather than going out and getting blasted on drink. But I, what I just want to, what I advert to is the fact that is the, the last bit, just as we did with tobacco. Now, it is the aim of the state and every, and every health arm of the state and that we would become tobacco free. And I just want to remind the listeners and any politician that might be listening to us, Alcohol Ireland says, it is their line, there is no safe level of consumption of alcohol. That is the line. That is the line of the WHO. That is the line, the official line of the HSC. There is no safe level of consumption of alcohol. The outcome, the ultimate ideal outcome 
for Alcohol Action Ireland and for their friends and their cohorts is no alcohol. So when they sell the line, and that's not something you're going to find easy to sell in Ireland or anywhere in Europe. So they don't sell that line. They talk about abusive drinkers and they talk about alcoholics and people whose lives are damaged and health is damaged by alcohol. And nobody who has any sense or compassion is going to is going to gainsay that there are people who have a problem with alcohol and that we must do everything we can to try and help people who have a problem with that with it of an abusive relationship with alcohol. And that alcohol can be a very bad thing. But for many, many, many people, the vast majority of people, that's not the relationship they have with alcohol. And it is also, by the way, not it is not uncontested that there is no safe level of alcohol. There was, a, we won't go into it now, but there was a study done by the University of Cambridge and University College London, two of the most preeminent uh, scientific research uh, universities in the world, taking a sample of uh, over one million people in a longitudinal study, which listed a list of benefits associated with moderate drinking. So it is it is not uncontested, the idea. Outside of breast cancer, I mean, it, it is true that breast cancer uh, is the, the alcohol consumption and the, the connection with breast cancer is pretty well incontrovertible. But for a host of other health issues, the question of whether or not abstinence or moderate consumption of alcohol is better is a highly contested issue. The science is far from decided on this. And there's a hell of a lot of science which suggests that a moderate consumption of alcohol is actually healthy and healthful. And also, Gary, we like it. It is fun. It is enjoyable. And that is not something which is a minor detail in life. I often wonder if you described a life which was utterly devoid of things that you found to be fun, and people think fun is a frivolous thing, precisely what life would that be? But anyway. And just bringing that to the attention, the notion that this is simply about removing certain kinds of abusive behaviour. These people are fundamentally prohibitionists. That is the long-term and ultimate aim. And don't be fooled by it. That is my opinion. That is not a fact. I'm just looking at the, the length of time on the recording, and all I could think was, I shouldn't have put the thing on alcohol at the end. <laughs> you know how you get, Michael, when these people come up. I do, I do. I know it's, it's it's something of a hobby. And do you know the funny thing is, I can't remember the last time I had a drink. I actually can't remember either. I just, I have a feeling these people are absolutely willing, as many NGO groups are, to effectively mislead people if they think it will lead to a positive outcome. And I just, I don't think that tends to end well if you start this sort of parental, well, we will get you where you need to go and you don't need to really know why you need to get there you don't really need a decision that would just be awkward there is a bit of the there is a bit of that off these people and there always has been there's a bit of the noble lie about them and other groups that we've discussed in the last couple of weeks you know that it you know if you have to you have to tell the odd fib in order to bring the hoi polloi along with you they don't fully understand what is the best thing for them so sometimes you have to tell a fib in order for them to achieve what is the best outcome for them and also the other thing that really and it's a petty personal thing annoys me when you meet them they cannot imagine that somebody like me or you could in good faith disagree with them on their policies towards extra regulation extra cost and extra restrictions on the purchase of alcohol without in some way being a shill for the drinks industry 
Uh, we will, I'm sure, we'll be returning to this. I have some fun facts that I've been working out about the effect of the cost of the minimum alcohol pricing bill on the ordinary Joe Soap, which I am hoping will terrify the listeners and get them scurrying to their TD's offices to bang them down and say, no, no, stop this madness now. Was this, is this why Podrick Pierce went out in the GPO? No. Anyway. We will be back Sunday. I think on Sunday we will probably be talking about... Um, there's a couple of things that have come up during the week I want to touch on. But one in particular was the uh, recent blog post by the Trinity Professor of Law, uh, yes. Oren Doyle. Sunday, about the restrictions on churches and whether or not... Um, whether or not churches are actually legally precluded to open, which apparently is a far more uh, of an open question than we had thought. But that's something to look forward to, folks, for Sunday. All the best.